Welcome to A Well-Cared-For Human, the podcast that tries to convince you that you are 100% normal and an even better than okay example of the human species, despite the fact that sometimes we feel like the craziest, most incapable, or worthless creatures on the face of this planet. I'm Corey, an author, a creative, and the host of the show. Whatever you're bringing to the table today, I hope this episode proves to be a dose of inspiration for you on your quest to become a well-cared-for human. You can find the episode show notes, your free wellness blueprint, and more at awellcaredforhuman.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello, humans. It's your host, Corey, and today we're going to talk about focus. And this just felt like a natural progression from the overwhelm subject we touched on last week. And also because my plate has been really filling up lately. (laughs) And these notions of overwhelm and focus have been in the forefront of my mind. And so I've been giving them quite a bit of thought. Things like, what is focus? Why does it matter? Why does it help me to live a healthier, more fulfilled life? And really, I've come up with the conclusion that there are two kinds of focus, or at least two kinds that I want to talk about, two kinds from my experience. For all I know, maybe there are a thousand kinds of focus out in the world. But the first kind of focus is very broad. It's the sort of wide lens focus that you have about your life. Anytime we look at our life and we have an awareness of our goals and our overall purpose, why we want to be here, why we want to do things, what we want to do, Or maybe you don't have that at all. (laughs) Or maybe you have no idea why you're here or what you want to do or you're not task-oriented like I am. It's very possible that that's true. And even if that's the case, you probably have a sense of I am alive and this thing called life seems to have some sort of momentum and progression to it and I need to move through the days somehow. Whatever that is for you, the kind of awareness of this larger realm, this larger scheme of existence. (laughs) It does feel like a scheme half the time, doesn't it? And the second aspect of focus or the second form of focus is the micro version, which is what I consider the day-to-day struggle to stay on track with my self-care, with my plan to make sure that I'm a well-cared-for human and to not get too distracted by the 10,000 things that are always vying for my attention. And so we can't talk about focus without talking about its counterpart or its antithesis, which is the habit of distraction. Because why do we need focus? And it's because we are distracted. And I know I've talked about Pema Chodron a lot, and I'm going to talk about her again, but she does discuss the tendency for humans to, I think she calls it a propensity for distraction, how we strengthen the habit of distraction. And so I do encourage you to go listen to or read her work on that if that interests you. It has absolutely been invaluable to me, certainly. But in my case, there are many ways that I practice distraction, which weakens my ability to remain focused. And one of the ways that I practice distraction, which almost everyone I know in the world right now (laughs) is dealing with this, is the tendency to scroll the internet a lot. I can absolutely lose hours on YouTube looking at different videos. I can start by just trying to find some kind of tutorial that I actually needed for something, like how to upload something properly or how to edit this, and then suddenly it's two hours later and I'm looking at often dog videos, if we're being honest. I send my wife a lot of dog videos of jokes about how much money you spend on your dog (laughs) or dogs doing really cute or silly things. And so 
I won't even know how I got there. I came to the internet to solve a problem and now suddenly I'm sending everyone I've ever met videos that have been coming up on my feed. But also if I'm in the middle of something, like a meditation or something that requires focus, I will start thinking, oh, if I can just get up and do this or check on this or look up this. So my mind will kind of propose all of these alternative tasks to me. (laughs) It seems like my mind is desperate to not focus on something. And if I give it a task like meditation, which requires just rest and open awareness and non-doing, my mind freaks out. I have come to accept about myself that I have a very doing-oriented mind. My mind is forever strategizing. It's forever trying to get things done. It's forever trying to navigate from point A to point B. And so especially if I give it a task in which we're not doing something, when the objective is to just watch or to just listen, it really doesn't know what to do with itself. (laughs) And so it will ramp up this tendency to offer me escapes or alternative plans. You'd be like, no, really, I think you should check to make sure the dishwasher even started. Are you sure the dishwasher started? I don't know if the dishwasher started. Did you hear that noise? Oh, maybe you should go see what that noise was. Really, it would come up with the craziest things. And so if I'm following every whimsical thought that my mind has, whether that be during meditation or in some other time of the day in which I'm trying to do something else, when I follow those thought patterns, it also strengthens my habit of distraction because I'm basically telling my mind, yes, you can interrupt me when I'm doing this other thing and I will listen to you. I will do what you tell me to do. And it took me a long time to realize that the mind was almost like a separate entity that I could look at from a distance, which was an awareness that I gained, again, through a lot of meditation. And looking at your mind at a distance, eventually you get this sense that you don't have to do what it says. It's like a separate voice. It, it isn't necessarily you. You don't have to fully identify with it because it can have thoughts and ideas and suggestions that maybe you don't completely believe in or completely align with. And I think that really only comes after a certain level of this introspection, of this development of awareness. So now I really do view it as this squirrely little voice. It's like, oh, we could go do this or we could do this. And I'm like, no, we're writing right now. Or no, we are trying to meditate right now. And I have to talk back to it instead of indulging it and strengthening its ability to disrupt me, to disrupt whatever I'm trying to do at the time. And I should say that this really only works when I catch myself. Of course, there are plenty of times where I still fully identify with my mind. (laughs) And I don't view it as a separate squirrely voice when it feels like I am the squirrely voice, (laughs) the squirrely interior monologue. And this is usually at its worst when I'm trying to do too many things at one time without concentrating on one task at a time. I remember there was a period of my life where I was so proud that I was the kind of person who could do 20 things at once. And then I read this article about how multitasking is essentially an illusion. (laughs) (laughs) that the brain can't actually do more than one thing at a time in the traditional sense. Obviously, like, it's pumping your blood and it's your breathing at the same time. We're not talking about essential functioning systems. We're talking about driving a car and texting, for example. Your mind can't actually do those two things at once. What it's doing is it's switching back and forth between them really rapidly. Or at least this is what I had read in that article. Someone can check my sources and let me know if that's still true because science is forever changing and we're learning more and more. My information might be out of date, but when I read this article, 
and essentially said that we just switch back really quickly back and forth and so it feels like we're doing two things at the same time and so ever since I read that I tried to break myself of the habit of multitasking and instead take items one at a time even though it felt horribly excruciating at first <laughs> like, like the worst idea ever I felt like I was moving so slowly when I was trying to get things done and eventually that feeling did dissipate a little bit but it, it took a while it took a really long time for me to get used to but the main strategy I use to weaken my habit of distraction is I practice refraining and we're not just talking about daily life here so refraining is when you hold yourself back from doing something. That is to refrain. And refraining is necessary in all bad habits. So I had to practice refraining when I was in toxic relationships, either refraining from getting into arguments with them or refraining from indulging in the same negative patterns, the same self-destructive patterns and habits, refraining from enabling them. That was very true for my mom, you know, giving her money or anything that would sort of exacerbate her situation, refraining from saying yes to going to the bar with someone I had no business hanging out with, <laughs> refraining from checking out of my life by having self-destructive sex with someone, anything like that. And this also applies to refraining when it comes to reacting to situations. So, for example, certain situations, certain people, certain problems would trigger reactivity in me. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you have a history of abandonment like I do and situations in which it feels like someone's going to leave you or someone's going to choose something else over you, those feelings of abandonment might suddenly feel triggered by a situation that's similar and it might bring up a really destructive reaction to that. So for example, in the past, my abandonment issues might be triggered by someone cheating on me. I might really freak out or overreact rather than just breaking up with that person and moving on and realize they're not with my time. You know, I would be screaming or I'd be crying or I'd be really, really upset by the situation, throwing clothes out into the front yard at two in the morning absolutely something that's happened <laughs> because of reactivity. Fortunately, not for a long time, but you know, 17 years, I'm trying to do the math, maybe 17 years ago in my early, early 20s, that was definitely some kind of situation that I would have been dealing with at that time. Any kind of reactivity to a perceived threat, I had to learn how to break those habits through refraining. So not letting myself go down that path, going through that cycle again. And that required practice. Refraining was absolutely a habit that I had to strengthen again and again and again. The more you refrain from doing something, the better you get at refraining. And so using the example of bulimia, when I would get the compulsion to eat and to binge, to throw up, every single step of that process had an opportunity to refrain. So I could refrain from indulging the need to binge food. I could refrain from the desire to go to the store and look at everything in the bakery section. I could refrain from buying the food. I could refrain from taking it home. I could refrain from eating it all in about two minutes. I could refrain from not throwing it all up. And so every single step of that process was an opportunity to refrain from doing that next step in the process. But it took a lot of time for me to really break it down and to get stronger at each checkpoint. Sometimes I could only practice refraining at one piece. Like I could not stop myself from going to the store, from going, getting the food, from eating all the food, from 
wanting to throw up, but then not throwing up. Like that would be, I could catch myself at the last second and practice refraining then. And I had to keep going through it over and over and again until it got really easy to refrain from that part and then going further up the cycle. Like, okay, so I caught myself buying the food, but I would take the food to a friend's house or I would donate it or I would give it to someone else as opposed to eating it. So it's like you would backtrack as you went, making the refraining practice stronger and stronger. And the way that refraining connects to not just toxic relationships and reactivity and destructive patterns and compulsions, how it connects to focus in particular is that anytime your mind goes off or it tells you to do something else or you feel compelled to get up or to move away, you can try practice refraining. You can try stopping yourself from indulging in the whims of your mind, in completing whatever action you've been convinced to do. That is your opportunity to practice refraining again and again. And another aspect of focus, apart from refraining, is clarity. If you have your why, like why are you even bothering to do all this work? (laughs) Why do you even bother practice refraining? Why do you even bother trying not to be distracted? Why do you even bother not strengthening this habit of over-identifying with your mind? Why bother? And for me, it just helps me to know what I want for myself, what my real goals are. And so having clarity is like having a reference point that I can keep returning to. So yes, I can tell myself, don't do this bad thing. But I always struggle with that format, that kind of shape of a thought, as you would say, because that's too much focus on the thing I'm not supposed to do. Instead, when I look at what I want rather than what I'm not supposed to do, it's easier for me to remain focused. So for example, like everyone else on this planet, I often have the aspiration to be a healthy eater. And so if I'm walking around all day thinking, oh, I can't eat that or I can't eat that, not only because I have a history of an eating disorder, am I setting myself up for some negative thought spirals, which are particularly dangerous for someone like me, but I'm focusing too much on what I can't do, what I can't have, what shouldn't be done. And that's not a great place for the focus to be. If instead I have healthy goals, like I would like to eat greens every day, whether that be spinach or kale or whatever. I need to eat greens every day. I need to eat oatmeal every day. I want to eat fruit every day. So if I had a list of the things I wanted to do, rather than a list of the things I can't do, naturally I would find that there was no time and space to do the, quote, bad things. I don't want to say that food is good or bad because I don't want to perpetuate any of these beliefs that we have about food. But I'll just say that for me, I have found more success if I just focus on what I want rather than what I'm not supposed to do. And so also using focus in this way to move us toward health rather than as a way to reinforce negative narratives. And how the clarity comes in is because things are just going to happen. Someone we love is going to get sick or die. Maybe we'll lose our job. Or maybe a book that we worked really hard on will not get published. It'll get rejected a hundred times first. Maybe that cutie we asked out will say no. They would rather eat alone at home with their cat. (laughs) Stare at us for 30 minutes. Whatever it is things come up. These situations can trigger big feelings in us. It can make us lose focus and it can make us feel like we want to react. We need to do something, anything. But in truth, the way to regain our center, to get back on track is to know what we're trying to get back on track for. 
So what I'm suggesting is just having a North Star that's a positive, loving vision of your yourself or your goals or your ambitions is better for you in service of your focus than focusing on the negative. An example of this is when I was at my lowest, back when I was still struggling with depression and I was in the early stages of trying to crawl out of my trauma cycle, because let's be clear, I was crawling, maybe not even crawling, I might have just been like dragging myself (laughs) in the direction of wellness. But whatever it is, when I was at my lowest, I had this vision of myself of what I would look like when I was well when I was healthy, when I was happy. And so I would see myself and I'd be smiling and my hair was great and my skin looked good and I looked really strong and I was surrounded by people who loved me, who wanted good things for me. And I had this feeling of being very supported, very loved and being very proud of myself, of how far I'd come. And so I kind of had this vision of what it should look like. And I just continue to maintain focus by taking steps gradually in the direction of that. Like, what would that person choose here? What would that person do here? And so together with the clarity, having this clear vision of where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, using refraining to help keep my habits and my progress in check, and then just even knowing why I was doing it, why it mattered, why I wanted to keep recommitting to this as things went on. All of this was really necessary in order for me to maintain good focus as I went along. So my point is here is that when you think of someone and you're like, oh my gosh, they're amazing. Look at them. They're getting so much done. They're living their best life. All I'm suggesting is that maybe what you're seeing in that person, the traits that you're recognizing, that you're admiring, is a person who's very good at refraining, a person who has some clarity about what they want, (laughs) and therefore they're just a very focused person. They know what matters to them, what's important to them, and what's not important to them, and they continue to make these small steps, taking themselves little by little away from the things they don't want toward the things they do want, And all of that is just a matter of focus. Okay, dear sweet human, that is all I have for you today. And before I sign off, I'd like to remind you again that the show is open for questions. So if you have a specific question that you would like me to offer my thoughts or experience on, you can email me at corey at coreymshrum.com and you will find that email in the show notes of this episode. I would never share your information on the show, so don't even worry about that. And otherwise, I will be back next week with another episode of A Well-Cared-For Human. And until then, please take good care of you. This episode of A Well-Cared-For Human was written and produced by me, Corey Marie. The music was by Late Night Feeler and Esther Abrami. If you like what I'm doing here, please consider visiting my Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you get early ad-free access to the episodes, as well as a monthly patrons-only Q&A, bonus videos, and more. Not to mention that your Patreon support lets me know that you find value in the show and want it to continue. You can find me on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Marie. If you can't support the show financially, that is okay. You can still subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, and recommend the show to your friends, not just the neurotic ones. All of this helps so much. And as always, thank you for listening.